Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Discussing Effective Engineering webinar. Um, we are live right now. Uh, people are going to be trickling in um, while I'm giving this intro, but I just wanted to go over um, a bit about who we are and kind of how this uh, webinar is going to go, go ahead. So I am uh, Jamie and I'm on the marketing team here at Evolution. Um, and today we just wanted to have a very open discussion, a roundtable format. Um, about effective engineering leadership. Um, on the right-hand side, you should see a few different panels. Um, there's a chat panel where everyone can kind of um, add their information and add their uh, opinions on the discussion. There's a question panel where we're going to be posing a few questions uh, to you guys. And there's also a polls panel where we're going to be putting in polls for you guys to vote on. Uh, the first question that we wanted to pop in was just a general one, um, who you are. Uh, so just tell us a bit about yourself um and that would be great um but for now uh we're going to throw it over to our panel um, who are questions today um and we're going to do a few intros um so could we start with you matthew please sure uh good day everyone my name is matt sinclair and i'm partner and vp of engineering at bcg digital ventures uh, here in london a um, bit of background, I've been building software in one form or another for about 26 years now, I think, roughly. Um, I've built everything from a flight simulator in Singapore back in the mid-90s through to haute couture fashion e-commerce and everything in between. Um, I spent most of my career uh, down in Australia, developed uh, in a few startups, a couple I started myself, which were complete disasters, and uh, one or two where I was an early stage employee. Uh, that were that went on to be um, a, a bit more successful. Um, I've got a, a background in payments, uh, high performance mission critical systems, so the, so the stuff that runs the back end of the payment system. So, spent a lot of time in financial services. Uh, since moving to the UK five years ago, um, I've been uh, leading the engineering team here in, at, at DV in London, and we've built about um, I think about 30 or 35 ventures i think since in that time and 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 uh like i said everything from port kitchen or fashion to cement delivery uh, and, and pretty much everything in between um these days I, I refer to myself as principal of cto school uh jokingly and and what i mean by that is that i, I run a team of venture ctos basically who, whose job my job is to get the crap out of the way so that that uh, the venture ctos can do can do do their best work and i'm happy to be here today thanks thanks matt uh, Melanie, could we go to you next? Sure. Hey, everyone. I'm Mel Yenkin. And um, in my current role, I'm leading a design team who work on a product called Google My Business within Google, spread across London and the US. And it's basically a tool that allows businesses to get a presence on Google search and maps. And I've been at Google for the last two years. Um, and my specialty is leading user experience teams um, and kind of working with other you know, engineering and product partners to like holistically lead those initiatives cross-functionally. Um, before Google, I've worked at a few startups, a few agencies. I worked at eBay for a little while. Probably detect the Australian accent here. It's surprising that you would have both Matt and me, two Australians on the call in one go. But yeah, we do love London. So I moved over to the UK about eight years ago. Um, and yeah, that's me. Thanks, Mel. And Usman? Hi there everyone, uh, thanks for joining today. So I'm Usman Hamid, um, in my current role I'm currently the CTO uh, leading infrastructure strategy and architecture for, for Barclays. 
it's a slightly different role to both Melanie and, and Matt uh, in, in the fact that it's very traditional infrastructure orientated. However, uh, with the adoption of public cloud, most of my time is spent on driving automation and software defined infrastructure into the environment. So the concept of engineering starting to become more and more important for us as we start to become more agile and focus on things like self-service and, and you know creating more automated workflows. Um, prior to that, I was at the BBC doing a similar role, uh, <clears throat> focused on product engineering, so all things cloud and SaaS, basically. Um, unlike Melly and Matt, I'm kind of UK-based, so I'm not from Australia. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that's kind of me in a nutshell. Thanks. So <clears throat> we've got a very mixed, uh, mixed range of experiences there, so that's great. So we're hoping this is going to be a very, um, uh, a very well-rounded discussion um on engineering leadership and technology leadership as well by extension um so we're going to just get stuck into the questions now um so the first question um all these questions have been gathered uh throughout our community so we've we've, we've put it out to, to to our candidate community and they've come back to us with these questions um so the first one is around designing team structures so um you know how, how important is it to get that right uh sometimes you might adopt a team sometimes you might have the opportunity to, to, to kind of build that yourself um, um and just your thoughts and opinions on, on on what you know what good looks like from a team structure perspective and and how, how you kind of how, how you plan on on designing that so could we go to you first Osman? sure i'll just take myself off mute so yeah it, it's an interesting one uh, so i was thinking about this and i think as I was going through my thought process in terms of how to answer this question, I think I think it came back to looking at myself and taking taking a view in terms of understanding what my own limitations are first and foremost. Because I think you know part of creating a credible team around you is understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, and then trying to understand what kind of gaps you have that you need to fill with credible people around you. So, so that you can be successful, basically. So, I think I think that's kind of like the first first thing that I would I would say is, you know, understand your own limitations and what you need to focus on to be successful in your own role, and then based on that, you can start to build that credible team around you that can support you in helping to achieve those goals and, and maybe take away some you know some of the pressure and actually be accountable for their own specific deliverables, basically. Um, you know, ultimately structures can vary, you know, based on role, you know, scope, the type of organization you're in. But, you know, having that kind of inward look at yourself and then conducting that capability assessment, you know, in terms of whether you adopted a team or what your kind of gaps are. I think for me, you're kind of, you know, the first things that you should look to do as you start to find out more about the individuals that you've got at your disposal. And then from there, you can start to look at, you know, what the right mix and blend of skills and, and people are that you need to be able to create that kind of, you know, team that can execute for you. Excellent, thank you. Uh, Melanie, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I've been through so many reorganizations in my time. It's kind of crazy. Already a few at Google, and you know, I think there's the reality is that no organizational design is perfect. Um, but there are some good principles that you can kind of work by. Um, I used to believe that there was like a very set way that you would have to set up UX and design within engineering organizations for it to be successful, but really it needs to be individualized to the organization. Um, and when I look at the team design and the setup, I, I love the principle of Conway's law, 
to kind of keep in mind that any organizational design um, that you create will end up being mirrored in the product or the system that that team is actually building. And there's an interesting Conway. So the actual thing is that any organization that designs a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organizational's communication structure. And I've seen that in so many of the products that I've worked in, like the silos that exist in the team exist then in the product itself. And that can be um, in how the API speak to each other, or it can be in terms of what the actual interface is that users are seeing. So I think keeping that in mind when you're designing the team structure is really important, like what experience are you actually trying to create? And then from a design perspective, um, I really push for um, UXs to be embedded with their cross-functional peers. So, you know, to like set up a team of cross-functional people who are fully allocated to work on their problem space and kind of giving them a problem space to own and that they're kind of responsible for rather than like a feature they have to ship um, and kind of saying to them, you need to solve this problem and we're going to measure it in this way. And then now you have the autonomy to iterate and really figure out like, what is the end solution that we need to create rather than just shipping the thing that, you know, leadership is telling them to. Um, and that's how I've seen teams be more successful is when they've got the right people they need together in the room with the right space to actually have ownership over the thing that they're delivering and the right um, you know, process in place so that they can fail in a safe way. So it's okay for them to experiment and iterate and say if something is you know, not the right approach and it's not going to actually help them achieve their end goal and solve that initial problem, then it's fine for them to pivot and do something else. Definitely, yeah, that, that kind of like psychological safety to, to, to go out there and explore. Uh, Matthew, we'll come to you now. Yeah, look, a lot of that is um, music to my ears, actually. So I, I, I've got a strange answer to this question because I have two quite different things going on at TV. The first one is I've got a team that, that is my engineering team, engineering cohort, but then what we have to do is put ventures together and those ventures draw on people from a from five or six different cohorts. So there's, there's sort of two, two different ways to think about it, if you like. And so on one level, we have a pretty standard um, you know, professional services, multidisciplinary team structure, associate, senior leader, director, et cetera. Um, but then what we do is we, we sort of put a team together that's specific for ventures. So my, one of my directors, Paul Slattery, he refers to this as casting, um, uh, which I really like, as opposed to staffing. Uh, you try and find the best people that have the best casting for the, for the role that they're going to be playing. Um, and then, you know, in terms of a venture structure, we, we sort of, we have a, a role we call venture CTO. And then underneath that, basically two front end, two back end, and then combinations of special, specialists as needed. But um, because of what we're doing, we're doing very early stage startups or most of the time. Um, you can actually do an awful lot with a really small team because particularly if you're if you're operating uh, in, in a completely standalone venture, like outside the corporate firewall for the client, you really have an awful lot of freedom. When you're inside the firewall, it's a bit different. You know, sometimes there's some other constraints that come into play, uh, and you have to, you know, you have you need more more structure to it. But I, I really liked what you said, Melanie, about no one structure. What what we do is we give. Uh, we try to at least, we don't always succeed here, but we try to give really um, a lot of agency to the venture CTO and the team to make up the structure that, that suits them the best. And 
Um, I think we'll probably talk about this a bit later on, but um, what we what what I want to do is is just sort of get out of the way and let the team treat it as if it's their own own business and let them create the structure that, that best best suits them. And we've got a bit of luxury in that we do this a lot, and so we've got quite a bit of um, what you call it scar tissue from from all the times we've failed uh, to get it right. And so whereas a new team, if it was just a garage startup, you know, in, in the garage, we we'd, we'd be a lot of work to get the right structure going. Our folks typically will be doing one or two maybe even three benches a year so so they're 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 actually they're able to really hit it and get that structure that suits them quite quickly which is which i think is pretty unique the the other thing that we do is if we've got a bit more time on this one is that um we have this we have uh streams so we've got the levels but we also have streams and so we have creative engineer venture cto deep tech expert and more recently we've introduced this solution expert and so what what we try to get folks to do is pick a major something that they're 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 going to concentrate on, but then to have one, at least one minor. And, and so uh, a creative engineer is, is sort of at the front end of stuff. They're, they're doing uh, innovation type work, typically consulting into innovation, whereas a venture CTO would be in incubation when you actually build, get, get down to building something, they're acting like a traditional, C, uh, traditional CTO in a startup. And then the DT and the, and the SC, they're more consulting roles. So they deep tech expert knows some deep practical experience about a deep technology can consult into either innovation or incubation. And the solution experts are there to help us work with clients. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, more enterprise, I call Big E enterprise, right, where you need some of those other governance processes have to come into play. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably Sorry. enough on that. Well, well, well it's, uh, this initial discussion has, has spawned off a few questions. One of them that, um, that I think um, comes off, off that quite naturally, which has come from Andy Norton. Um, so... Um, that this question is what has worked well for you all when you need to bring people along with you on new initiatives like training for example and create engagement and involvement with people within your disciplines uh so does anyone want to want to take a stab at that first melanie yeah i can jump in um so i think so this is saying specific initiatives like training. Um, I can speak more to new initiatives like um, product change initiatives that we've had. The best way that we've kind of proven to bring people along comes down to the basics of working with people is like having enough time together to actually, you know, discuss what the initiative is and to really understand like the why behind it. I think if we just say, oh, we need you to go and complete X, it's going to be very unlikely that someone is going to feel motivated to go and do it. So when we've rolled out new initiatives, we've met with each of the groups, whether it's a certain discipline or a certain person who's responsible for a certain area and try to think about tailoring the message. So it's like, we want you to do X because it's going to help you as an individual person achieve you know, a certain result, which is important for you as a person, not a generic message for everyone around, oh, this is good for us as a business. Because um, ultimately people are pretty self-centered. It's just human nature. And so having some kind of message, which is like, this is important for your individual role or your team and will provide you with a certain benefit has been the main way that we've had success in getting people to actually get involved and care about it because they can clearly understand what it's going to deliver for them if they go and do that thing. Um, top-down mandates tend to, uh, not, you know, massively fail without <laughs> any clear benefit described. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, Osman, have you got anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, apart from the the comments that Melanie's made, I think, you know, ultimately it's trying to determine the value of what you're doing and how important it can bring to the firm that you're in right now. I think a lot of the times we tend to focus on things like Melanie said, and it's kind of a very task orientated without any kind of tangible value to the firm at the end of it. So I think having... I think we may have just lost uh, Usman a bit there. Um, Matthew, do you want to yeah, jump in here? Yeah, rescue. Um, th- so this is a tricky one. I um, I'll tell you how I feel about about training. And so from from my point of view, I find that the best way to to learn something is to get in and do it. And and the folks at DV that, that we have on our team, they're, they're they're all pretty much like that. And so what 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 we try and do is get them you know get them um uh, operating in an environment with some good uh, um uh, you know some folks who know what they're doing and then they can model their behavior on on, on what they're seeing and I, and I think that in my career that's been the thing that's been the most beneficial for me in terms of training like just being i worked at a couple of really great companies back in sydney where the folks you know the folks that that i was a junior there and the senior folks had gone on to do some amazing things subsequently um and and i just feel really blessed actually that i was able to able to, to spend some time with them so i've tried to recreate that uh in in our teams trying to get um we we make a um we spend a lot of time with our associates and, and i was going to talk about this a bit later on but um i'm i'm a big believer in promoting with from within right and so we spend a lot of time with associates getting associates to, to come in and folks who might not otherwise be traditional and have a traditional engineering background we've had really great success with career changes who've gone to coding schools um uh, you know so they, they you know they have they're, they're, they're well educated and qualified and experienced people but they've had a career change and decided that they wanted to be programmers and we've had some fantastic success stories with pushing those people through by by giving them the opportunity to work alongside really really good people and i think that's just absolutely the best training um more formal training we have it and we do do it and and i must admit some of it's been fantastic particularly coaching type training that we've done has been has been absolutely brilliant it's because a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily stuff that you can work out for yourself sometimes there's a you know i think programming and engineering you can you know sitting alongside someone doing good work you, it rubs off on you but i think coaching is one particular case and some aspects of leadership as well they're not intuitive or they don't have intuitive it's hard to find an intuitive access uh, to it and so so, so coaching i know my, myself again has been brilliant uh, coach to coach type training has been absolutely brilliant so we, we're really we spend a lot of time with coaching and and um 360 uh, well we'll get onto that topic as well later on but spend a lot of time on on um feedback uh, at dv and bcg in general so it's um it's something we spend <laughs> we spend an inordinate amount of effort on um, um so yeah uh, and and i you know i just i would echo what melanie said about about um uh, getting people on board. I think with, with particularly with smart people, uh, if you, you'll probably hear me say this again and again, but as soon as you take agency away from people, they start to disengage. And so if you just go out and tell people something directly, um, uh, they, they tend to not be as excited about it as if you leave a, few, a bit of white space for them to work out what, what to do. Uh, and I, I, I really, I really, um, uh, like, like I index very heavily on, on leaving some space for people to do some creative thinking and tell me what they're going to do rather than the other way around. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, thanks for the question, Andy. Um, hopefully um, that's been well and truly covered for you. Um, we've had another question that's come in, which I think potentially could be quite a quick fire one. Um, so this one has come from John Cross um, and he's asked the, me- uh, the metrics that you choose will, whether you mean them to or not, set the focus of your teams 
if you could choose only one metric for a team to report on, what would that be? Uh, Usman, could we uh, come to you first on that one? Apologies about that. My internet has decided to die, so I'm on the 5G modem right now. Here's tech, tech in action, right? No worries. Um, so, yeah, the question was metrics you choose. So, I think this is a bit of an interesting one for me because I think certainly in the field that I, I work, I think metrics for me can, can some, sometimes distract teams. I think that this is my personal view anyway. And I think... I think they can become distracting things, which mean that we we tend to lose focus and we start to chase numbers rather than experiences or, you know, doing the right thing sometimes. So for me, you know, if if metrics are important to you in your organization, you know, choose the ones that have got, again, the most value from a business perspective where you can demonstrate progress and just don't have them as arbitrary things that you need to hit, I think. So, you know, that's kind of my very simplistic view of you know how I would use metrics basically within within my day to day. Um, I'm not saying they're not important, but I think they have to be right in terms of what you're trying to achieve really. And you know sometimes they can be distracted. And you know we've all seen the famous you know project reports where everything's green, for example, and it and it kind of means very little. So I'm I'm not a I'm not a huge fan uh, of getting into the the kind of the uh, the actual myriad of like metrics. That's much my personal view anyway. Uh, Melanie, what are your thoughts on on metrics? So I, I think ideally I like the team to think about who their customer is and then design an engagement metric that's the best metric for that customer. Um, and But I think you have to be very careful about what you choose because it does drive behavior and decision-making and um, is very hard to unpick. And at Google, we're super metric-driven and result-driven. So... Um, there's a lot of time spent designing the metrics themselves, but I always, you know, at being a UXer, um, like to choose the perfect engagement metric for um, a customer. So that could be, you know, 28 daily active usage for something. How often, how many of our customers are coming back to the product every 28 days or every seven days or, you know, even every day depends on the product that you're designing. Brilliant. And Matthew, any closing thoughts on that one? Yeah, look, I'm probably going to argue both sides of this. I, I like I like what has been said, actually. It's interesting because I, I, as I was writing, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, what do I think about metrics? But So let, let me start out. One of the things that I, I look for when, when we're hiring, particularly the venture CTOs or, or putting people into that role, is are they the kind of person that goes hunting for signals, right? And, and you really want... So you really want to be signal-driven because the, the one metric that, that really means... Uh, the most in our business is product market fit. Has the venture achieved product market fit? And it's sort of binary. It either has or it hasn't. Um, and then interestingly, it's not enough, right? So product market fit is one thing, but then you want to scale the business to get profitable product market fit. So at, at, at the very top level, and this is even in engineering, this is not just the product thing, this is in engineering. We, we are just really driven by, by product market fit. And you and so then the question is, okay, well, we've designed this new business. What signals am I going to go hunting for that will tell me, give me some idea about whether or not we're actually getting somewhere near product market fit? And so I really appreciate what Usman said there about there's a lot of vanity metrics. Um, and, then, and then you end up, 
you know, to sort of misquote Bezos, you sort of chase the you chase the, the the metric and not the thing that the metric's trying to represent, right? And I think that's that's a terrible thing. You see this, unfortunately, you see this in some sort of operational components of businesses. There's a lot of work that goes into these processes, and you stand back and you know, like timesheets is a great example. Right? There's so much work goes into timesheets in, in businesses, and you think, you know, I'm a fixed cost to the business basically. Why why do I have to fill out a timesheet? Anyway, I'm, I'm I'm getting off track slightly, but so so I I chase. I, I make sure I look for, for folks who go chasing uh, signals. And what I want them to look for, though, as well is, like I said, uh, not vanity metrics and also not purely technical indicators. I want them to think about people, process, and technology. And so I want them to have a bit of a balance of the things that they're looking for. Um, and, I, and I again, I appreciate what Melanie said about um, <coughs> what's the, like, ultimately, what does the user think? Here, right like what I think is sort of is pretty much irrelevant right what does the user think are users coming back to the side are they are they engaged you know those kind of things they're much more valuable metrics than than weird sort of internal process metrics that can just, just create noise Brilliant. Um, we've, we've had a we're getting less questions through now um, we've had one uh, specifically addressed to you Matthew so um, as you mentioned that you um, that you deal with um, Sorry, as you mentioned that you deal with various ventures at the same time, what advice would you give to a B2B SaaS startup for managing custom uh, custom development requests from clients alongside not com compromising that progress on the, on the core product development at the same time? So I'm just going to post that in the chat as well because um, I appreciate that's quite a long question. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, Look, I'll, I'll do my best to answer it, because, but I'll say from the outset, I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. Um, we've got one venture at the moment, um, uh, which I'll just remain nameless for a sec, but it is exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. It's a pretty high-tech um, uh, venture. It's got a lot of a lot of really quite deep technical things going on with it, um, and they are they have a very small number of very big customers, and those customers two or three customers are sort of dragging them in in different directions with custom feature requests and so they're they're basically um uh, you know they they're, they're I'm, I'm mentoring the, or coaching the cto at the moment and, and and we're having this conversation and he asked me more or less the same question you know how do, how do we cope with this and so the one bit of advice that i gave him and it's, it's far from perfect but this is this is how, how we thought about it was I, we came up with this concept called white label zero all right and what what i mean i've used this in a few different contexts but what, what i mean by that is that Imagine you have an ideal customer and build 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 your version for that, okay? And then all these feature requests can go into uh, um, uh, customized versions if you need to in the short term for, for, for each of your other additional customers. But make sure you've got an ideal customer that's driving the product in the direction that you want it to go in. Otherwise, you're just going to get pulled from pillar to post uh, and you'll end up being, you know, all things to everyone, which ends up being nothing nothing to everyone. Um, and I know that's a it's not a great answer. I'm really sorry. But this is a really, really hard question, actually, and it comes up a lot in SaaS businesses. How to how to avoid being being um, uh, yeah, uh, pulled pulled backwards and forwards. And uh, I don't know. I, I really can't think of anything other than what I've suggested. I'm sorry. No, I, I think I think that's brilliant. Uh, obviously, we we, uh, we we are we are you know in the session right now. We're trying to answer as many questions as possible. But we do obviously have the platform to to revisit these questions in the future. Um, so nothing is lost here, um, but yeah, I appreciate that, Matthew. Thank you. Um, we've had another question uh, through, um, which I'm going to uh, throw out, which is about managing innovation. Um, so how do you manage innovation, especially when one, manager's behavior is overly conservative, and two, devs and engineers want to apply tech because it's cutting edge without considering user experience? 
So um, can we start with you, Melanie, considering it's um, in your wheelhouse? Um, big question. <laughs> big question. How much time do we have? Um, how do you manage innovation? So I guess it depends on... Um, I, I honestly feel like this is the same, almost the same answer to the first question that we had, which is like, how do you structure the team? Because I feel like if you have the right people and the right functions together with the right purpose established for that group, then they will, and that they also have the right space to fail, you know, and to see those as learnings, then you'll have an environment where innovation will occur. Um, I think in the specific part of the question there, which was talking about engineers wanting to use technology and not necessarily considering user experience, if you have a team, you know, are fully allocated with all those functions represented, you know, those kinds of questions would happen and you would have a healthy debate within the team and you would ultimately have that team orient towards choosing the solution that makes the most sense for the end user. And the, you know, the UXer would be able to say, let's go and test this, let's go out into the wild and let's actually see whether that proposed prototype or solution will will actually make any change, you know, and benefit the, the problem that that user is trying to solve for. Um, and to basically decide things that way rather than trying to decide as an internal debate. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a long-winded setup, but yeah, basically if you get the team together and you give them the space to have ownership over a certain problem that they're trying to solve, um, I do think that's how you make innovation occur. Um, and I'll hand over to the others now. Sure. So uh, Osman, do you have any thoughts on uh, managing uh, innovation uh, when specifically organizations may be overly conservative? It's, it's quite a difficult one because I think there's a fine line uh, here between wanting to progress the capability of the org against I guess some of the commercial pressures that you might be under uh, or kind of as a, as a kind of organization but I think without innovation then you can never move forward really you know ultimately I think you know as much as there's going to be obstacles and there'll be issues that you have to kind of overcome but i think it's hugely important you kind of harvest that innovation either whether it's through dedicated hackathon days or you know something of that kind of sort where you're bringing different thinking to the table and you know out of those kind of you know days you may get something that's got real value to the business that might take to the next level or introduce a new kind of product feature or concept into your kind of offering really. So I think I think it should be encouraged. Um, and I think it should be actively encouraged within your team because ultimately it's what it's what ultimately keeps for me people within organizations and actually keeps them interested because as soon as you start to lose some of that people will then start to look elsewhere for different challenges. This is this is a question that's really close to my heart because we do this every day. Clients come to us and ask us that, you know, this more or less the same question. Um, and I, I, let me say two things. So the first thing that enterprises suffer from is fear of failure, big enterprises, fear of failure. It's, it's often a lot easier just to do nothing uh, rather than do something and risk failure because then someone can point at you and or point at that thing and say, say that it failed. And we see that a lot. And so, and, and, and also big organizations are, marvelous at, at mustering innovation antibodies, right? And an innovation antibody are these sort of organizational tendrils that emerge when anyone tries to change something. And, and in particularly big organizations, they're big because they've been successful at doing the things they've always done. 
and 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 so these antibodies aren't actually they're not irrational or, or evil they're they're sort of rational in 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 many ways because you look at it and you think okay this business we, what we want to do here is make sure we don't screw with anything otherwise we're gonna you know we're gonna do something wrong with the customers or the revenue or whatever and so it's sort of it's sort of in a weird way it's rational behavior to 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 muster these antibodies against it and so one of the things that we really really focus on at DV is this failure failure tolerance. Uh, and and celebration of failure even and uh, my, the product uh, VP product here Dan Cohen in, in London he has this great saying which is there's no such thing as failure there's only validated learning and he says it all the time and and so I think that one of the tricks to, to uh, at least to enterprise innovation is getting a tolerance and a, a, a resilience to failure uh, celebrating it um, and you know and being ready for it and then the other thing just on the tech the specific tech question that you mentioned because we have this as well. I do a bit of entry, we do a bit of entry filtering on that when we're hiring people. We're very clear to them that DV is about building things, uh, building, finding product market fit, building ventures. It's not about building the next bit of GWiz technology for the sake of it. And so we, we sort of look for that on the on the way in. Uh, and, and often uh, we're looking for people who want to build things, not just people who want to play around with the tech. And so we're a bit lucky in that sense that we've been able to filter out um, some folks who might be better off tinkering on open source projects or, you know, pushing the boundaries of tech rather than all doing research. You know, some, you know, like a Google, for example, has got plenty of opportunities to do research into these things or even, even um, you know, some big enterprises have those those divisions that allow that to happen. But we're very much focused on building, building something uh, concrete and we, we do some entry selection to make sure people stick with that. Brilliant. Well, thanks for the question, Marcus. Hopefully there's a lot to think about there. Um, going on to the next question now. Um, so this one's about building influence across the organization. So other than, you know, just doing a great job, um, do you guys have any like uh, tried and tested uh, strategies or methodologies for, for kind of um, spreading your influence across the organization? Uh, could we start with you, please, Osman? Yeah. Um... Again, I think a huge part of this comes down to credibility. Um, and I think, you know, as kind of, you know, leaders of large engineering teams, you know, people look to you to kind of make those kind of, you know, credible decisions that are going to, you know, get some the organization. So I think it's able to influence uh, and having the platform and the stage to have those kind of conversations because, Without that credibility, you're not going to get your foot in the door, so to speak, or you're not going to be taken seriously. So I think credibility is a huge part. And then I think after that, it's it's more around, um, I think we only touched on it before, maybe Matt as well. It comes down to how you kind of come across in your, like, you know, you, you, how you kind of interface with people, you know, how you treat people with respect and, you know, trust. So there's a lot of personal aspects that are kind of, not taught really to be quite honest which you either I, I think personally you you either learn the hard way like through learn learn experiences or you're kind of naturally gifted in in being quite people-centric and you have a natural flair for getting people on side so i think we've all come across you know great leaders in the past you know from big tech companies like apple or kind of microsoft where you know people have a certain amount of gravitas and they're able to command you know conversation so i think there's two parts to it for me there's the you know the the actual being credible is hugely important but then the more important thing is how you actually treat people how you interface with people uh, to kind of you know bring people along that journey with you and, and and to get that kind of consensus that we're heading in the right direction and that's all down to people's skills do you think uh do you think people like 
the new leaders especially um, kind of overthink that maybe they, they're, they're kind of in that position and it's almost back to basics isn't it yeah it's interesting actually and it'd be good to get you know matt and um, uh, melly's perspective on this but you know i think when people make that step into you know becoming a leader you have to you have to realize that you have to let go of a lot of the things that you used to kind of do before like i mean we call it micromanagement but it's that kind of you you can't be so microscopic anymore as you were before because you've got different aspects to your role that you need to think about which is how we how we develop people how we create a great culture so there's all these other things that kind of come uh, that that become equally important and you know i've always taken the people side of things very very seriously as i've kind of progressed because i think ultimately that's where a lot of your success comes from it's not about you as an individual where we're merely just custodians of all these people and we're trying to get them to do the best work in the environments that we kind of work in. So it's hugely important that we empower them, uh, make them accountable for things and, you know, make, make sure that they've got a way to shape the, the kind of the work that they're doing. So, yeah, I mean, we can all get lost in metrics and KPIs and, you know, budgets and things like that. And that's kind of the mechanics of the machines that we work in. But, you know, ultimately, getting the best out of people and actually developing talent is 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 something that can't be overlooked thank you um melanie do you want to uh, add to that on um building your inf influence across the organization yes i think i can only really underscore i think the big piece from what osman said there is around people like how you actually have the relationship with someone to actually influence them um so like the way i describe it to people in my team when i'm coaching them on it is to think about all the meetings you need to have before the meeting where the decision happens um like who do you need to be speaking to to answer individual questions with or building rapport with so that when you get into that actual forum that they are already on side to like what's being proposed um because the chances of something being successful it's a radically new concept or something like that within a meeting is, is quite low if people haven't already been brought along for the journey so um that can be like for an individual decision but like personally i actually track my stakeholder maps for like all the people who are going to be important stakeholders for me who would be my reviewers um and i revisit that every couple of months and i kind of rate my relationships with each of those people. I note the how am I meeting with them? What are those forums? What comments do I have about like do they need to build more rapport or not? And it's like essential to success within the organization. It depends on which org you're in, but within Google, it's very much related on how your peers are viewing you and rating you. So like making sure that you have a really good relationship with your stakeholders so that when it comes to actually making decisions and influencing them, you can rely on the trust and rapport that you've already built and um, is kind of key. But it's not much else to add. I think was one you had That's a great brilliant. answer there. No, no, brilliant. Uh, Matthew, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, look, when, when you sent this question across, I, I was I thought about it slightly differently and I, I was thinking, um, answering directly, is it possible to resolve relationship issues within your team as a manager? And I, the first thing I thought of was, well, you have to assume that's true, right? If you if you didn't, then I think you're probably missing missing a beat as a as a manager as a leader. And then the thing that flowed on from that for me was this sort of idea of friendship at work and how complicated it can be, and particularly in a leadership leadership role, it's quite tricky um, to be friends with someone and then try and give them pretty pretty um, candid feedback, direct feedback, that, that, that can be challenging. And so I had this policy where I don't have to be friends with everyone I, I work with, uh, and it's, it's, it's not true 
that I don't have friends at work. I've got friends like lifelong friends that I've built up at work, but, but equally I've got folks that I don't consider friends at all, but I have deep respect for. Um, uh, and I, and I, and I have a very professional relationship with them, but it's just, that I'm not going to their house every second week for a barbecue. Um, and uh, but we can still, we can still get on. So I, I think that's su super important. The, the other thing that sprung to mind that was a bit different was that, um, uh, you, you mentioned that it was been, and I, and I, I love this. I actually wrote a blog post on this exact point uh, last year. Um, the point where you get promoted is the moment where you're least qualified to be that new uh, in, in that new role, and that's and it's really true from going from an engineer as an individual contributor to to a manager or a leader. Um, I, I wish I'd said this. I wish I'd coined this phrase. I didn't, but it's just so brilliant because I use it all the time. Um, management or, or leadership is a career change, not a promotion, and and um, and a lot of engineers really really get caught up on that that hump and so what you have to do and I, I coach folks with this all the time you've got to as an engineer you get this sort of creative nourishment by building stuff okay I, I, I mean that's I love it I love tinkering around hacking around but what I had to learn was that instead of getting that creative nourishment from actually doing stuff myself I had to get it by proxy and these days it's like three or four levels of of indirection between where the, the folks are actually on the keyboard typing and, and writing software and me, me at VP. So you have to, it's a skill you have to learn or develop or, 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 or um, uh, you know, craft and, and hone yourself. It doesn't come uh, naturally. In fact, for some engineers, it really doesn't come at all. And uh, they're not great, they don't make great managers, let alone leaders. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant. Um, and I think. Uh, really off the back of that point, uh, this next question about identifying kind of other leaders on your team. So, so people who are, are demonstrating those capabilities, um, how, how, how do we spot them? And then, and then what do we do? Because, you know, sometimes, um, I've, I've, I've heard it, you know, where sometimes people step up into leadership positions and, and then kind of their natural instinct is to look for people who have made the same steps that they have. That's kind of just natural, isn't it? But, but that isn't, People aren't always going to make the same same steps. So, so kind of, I want to throw it open to you guys. How how do you, how do you kind of spot other other leaders, and, and what do you then do do to empower them? Um, could we go to you first, please, Mel? Yes. So, equitable career development and um, or inclusive career development is a big passion area of mine, and I think it should be a key part in thinking about how you identify other leaders. I'm seeing you know, unfortunately, a lot of situations where these opportunities seem to just happen in closed doors and not everyone is even aware that those opportunities exist. Um, so what I do with my teams and then what my managers do with their teams is have, you know, a solid career plan for every individual that we refresh every six months but revisit every month. And part of their career plan is to identify all the motivating factors that an individual has and what their own ambitions are. So, like, it's really clearly stated for every individual on the team if, like, if leadership, you know, is a direction they want to go into. For Google, we're fortunate that you don't have to move into management to progress um, in your career, you can keep specializing and get more senior levels as an individual contributor. But, you know, we clearly articulate with every individual, like, what is your, what do you care about over the next six months? What are the main things that are driving your motivation? It could be they want a promotion. It could be they're just trying to get healthy work-life balance. Um, and it's different for every individual. Then once the goals are really clearly stated, then the manager can play the role at looking at equitable in assignment of the projects and opportunities um, and just having like 
a very intentional perspective over how you assign the work that gets handed out. And I'm a big believer in um, a manager looking at that consciously, not just in the work that's important, that is like what I call promotable tasks, but also the non-promotable tasks. The unfortunate reality is that people from underrepresented groups tend, especially women, tend to be the ones who put their hand up or get volunteered by someone else to do what I call office housework, which is like the things that we need to make the team work, like birthdays and events. And But it takes time and all of that time spent is not on the things that are helping them get their leadership goal or, you know, whatever it might be. So we do equitable assignment of what we call office housework to make sure that that's like fairly shared and so that everyone's playing their part in that and everyone gets an opportunity to do the extra stretch goals that they, you know, tasks they might need to get to the next level. Brilliant. Thank you, Mel. Um, Matthew, anything to add to that? Um, what, what was the question? I was just, sorry, I was just really... What was the question you were answering? Because I was my, my brain was going a thousand miles an hour. I'm just like re, redoing a bunch of stuff based on what Melanie just said. What was that? Uh, right. the, the question was about um, so identifying leaders and, and kind of building okay. the right platform for them to succeed and empowering them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So one of the, again, this is back to signals. One of the things that I look out for um, is the ability to get out of the way. And and so when when we've we've had people that are that are looking like they're ready to move into what we call an engineering leader role, uh, venture CTO type role, um, is are they are they putting their folk, the folks around them the folks under them into opportunities that 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 show them at their best, right? Um, we've we've by the time they're ready for promotion, we've generally seen the person who's up for promotion at their best but what you want to do is make sure that they're they're recreating those opportunities for the folks around them so that that's a, a sort of it's a similar thing not quite as, as um algorithmic as, as what you, you were saying Melanie, or, or perhaps as robust as, as what you were saying but it's, it's a similar idea in that i want to make I, what i want a leader to do is to get out of the way and let the good people that they have working for them be their best uh and and if if they're if they're really sort of interventionist i know this is a style thing so other people don't subscribe to this to this this style that's perfectly perfectly fine but I, what i'm looking for is sort of non-interventionist leadership real you know sort of lead lead um you know it's it's kind of the reverse pyramid idea um what's it called servant leadership that's that's i think it's the technical term for it but yeah that that's that's definitely one of the things that i'm looking for when, when we're looking for people to promote so thank you um and Usman, final thoughts on identifying and empowering um potential leaders on your team yeah, I think I think to begin with, I'd say that it's very organisation specific um, when it comes to promoting talent. And I also think that being brutally honest, um, a lot of the things that we do as paper-based exercise don't eventually lead to real outcomes as well, uh, as much as we believe that, that they will. And that's and I, I think that's a that's one of the more disappointing aspects of i think you know being a leader sometimes is you have very credible individuals who you know 100 percent can do a better role but there isn't a role for them to move into because the person in that role hasn't moved on and you know i'm you know i'm quite open with people that i've had in my team in the past that you know sometimes it is better for them to leave and look at opportunities elsewhere for growth um that's certainly how i've navigated Gosh, that that was awful timing, wasn't it? Um, but I think 
I want to reference a few of these polls that have gone out as well because they um they're, they're, they're kind of in line with what we're talking about now. So, uh, what leadership skill do you value? Oh, I'm back, sorry, you're back with us. Yeah. Yep, go ahead, mate. Yeah, so yeah, I, I was going to say, um, um, I do, I do encourage you know sometimes you know people to look elsewhere where they can get better growth opportunities to kind of progress their career. You know, I think this concept of being tied to a an institution for 25 plus years isn't 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 the way current grads kind of think really so you, you see a lot of people moving around every 12 to 18 months and and that's purely because they've reached a level and they can't kind of beat that kind of glass ceiling if you want to call it so they have to look elsewhere um so i think performance ultimately does dictate whether you know someone has outgrown their current role and potentially has skills that might be being underutilized, you know, not, not just for the benefit of them, but for the organization. And, you know, sometimes the biggest growth opportunities do come from doing things that are outside your comfort zone. I think, you know, all of us have, I think Matt mentioned before becoming, you know, from a manager to a, like a leader, it's a complete career change. And that's part of that kind of growth opportunity there. Um, for me personally, you know, it's always the best person for the job, you know, regardless of who they are, you know, I, I think it's easier said than done, but that's my kind of basic principle. Um, but I do recognize that there's still a long way to go to like remove, I guess, unconscious bias from the recruitment process. And, like, you know, that's something that we're all striving to do within within every kind of industry. Um, yeah, that's just my thoughts on, on that particular question. I mean, um... So yeah, I just wanted to um, reference some of these polls that we've been running. Um, so what leadership skill do you value the most? Empathy and active listening is coming out, um, stand out head and shoulders above everything else, driving ambition, project planning and vision and communication. No shocks there really, empathy, yeah. I, I think it's one of those skills where it's, you know, it's always seems to be at the top of the list, but very hard to quantify and, and, and um, almost you know how do you even master something like that um um where should engineering leaders be investing the majority of their time this one's quite tight uh split between directly supporting the engineering team and managing coordination across other teams in the business um no surprises there um and Biggest sign that someone is ready for leadership, um, audience comes in saying that they manage up effectively as being their uh, biggest signal that somebody is ready to take the next step. Um, any thoughts on that one, managing up? I think that's a good sign that someone's ready. That's an, an anti-pattern for me. I, I, really, I, I, I'm going to be the, the contrarian and say if I see that kind of behaviour, I, I start to get suspicious. Managing upward drives me nuts. Um, uh, so I... I um, I don't know. I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to disagree with the crowd there. Um, fine. It's a discussion. Um, uh, this, the second one was uh, mentoring someone on the team. So when when someone who obviously hasn't been given that remit to mentor someone actually steps up to do that, would we say that that's a good signal? Yeah. Well, that's that's right. So it's about leverage. How do you get the leverage out of your team? And and if it's if you're as the, if you if you the person is all you're doing is managing upwards, you're not getting leverage at all. From, from the folks from the folks underneath you, right? I mean, maybe the answers there were done a bit cynically. Like maybe the, maybe what the question was actually answered was, "What have you seen as an effective way to get promoted?" Yeah. Um, which which may, may be true, um, but for me that would be, you know, as I said, it's a bit of a, a bit of a red flag. 
No worries. Well, I think uh, we, we've we've slightly passed our forty-five minute mark now, um, so I think we'll we'll uh, we'll call it there for now. Um, and but we've managed to get through all the questions that the people have posed. Uh, we did have one through from Matthew. Um, but unfortunately, we'll we'll have to we'll have to uh, answer that in the community after this. Um, but I just wanted to thank you all for your time. I think it's been a really great session. Um, lots of food for thought. Um, full recordings will be available immediately after this, so you will be able to see uh, to, to kind of reference this in the future. Um, but um, um, hopefully, you've all had a good time, and hopefully, you know you've you've all come away with uh, uh, something to think about as well from from everyone else here. Um, so yeah, um, just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for organising. Brilliant. No worries. Um, but yes. Um, so. For those who are still with us, uh, thank you. Um, look out for that email coming through after the session, uh, which will contain the recording. Um, but other than that, um, I think it's, it's time we said goodbye.